Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. What if it's 11,000 overdue library books? The lead starts right now. As we wait for a judge to decide whether to appoint a so-called special master to review the material seized from Mar-a-Lago, we've just learned that the FBI recovered empty folders that were marked as classified, raising a host of new questions. Then, the unemployment rate edges up. We'll tell you why that might be good news for your wallet. Plus, climate change washing away the flood maps. Previously dry areas now under threat Has your home been pushed into a flood zone? Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Caitlin Collins, in for Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead and a new detailed look inside what the FBI seized from former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home last month. A federal judge today unsealed a seven-page inventory of the highly sensitive government documents that Trump had in his office and in his storage room, despite one of his lawyers telling the government they'd given everything back. Mixed in with newspaper clippings, clothes, and gifts, FBI agents found more than 11,000 non-classified government documents and more than 100 classified documents, 31 of those marked confidential, 54 marked secret, and 18 marked top secret, plus 90 empty folders, 48 marked classified, and 42 of those labeled, quote, return to staff secretary slash military aid. We should also note that at any moment really now, we could learn whether or not a federal judge has granted Trump's request for a third-party attorney known as a special master to review all of those seized documents. CNN Sarah Murray joins me live. Sarah, you know, this is a remarkable list because we don't usually get to see something like this. But as the judge noted, neither side really had any objections to making a more detailed list public. That's right. In a court filing that actually went with this list of documents, the Justice Department notes, normally we wouldn't put this information out there to the person whose home we just searched as part of a criminal investigation. But now we are getting this lengthy sort of look at what documents the former president had after so long negotiating with the National Archives and after going back and forth with the Justice Department, learning that there were still thousands of government documents that were not classified. There were 103 documents with classified markings. And we're also learning, you know, where in Mar-a-Lago these documents came from. So they point out that, you know, there were 27 documents with classified markings that came from the former president's office. So you really get a scope of what was still there again after months and months of wrangling, Caitlin. Yeah. And Sarah, we're still waiting to hear about the status of this special master. This is the third party attorney that the Trump team wants to review these documents. You know, what do we know about when we are going to find out if they're getting it or not getting one? Well, if only we knew when the judge (laughs) was going to issue her ruling, but she did not set a timeline. She said she was going to rule on paper. You know, she did indicate in the hearing, as she previously had, that she was open to this idea of a special master of giving the Trump team what they wanted. She asked, you know, sort of what is the harm in doing this? It was interesting, though, the former attorney general, Bill Barr, was on Fox News. Here's what he had to say about the possibility of a special master. 
I think the, the whole idea of a special master is a bit of a red herring. Uh, I think it would, you know, at this stage, since they've already gone through the documents, I think it's a waste of time. Now, he also had some scathing remarks about why the former president still had all of these documents. But on the question of the special master, we are still waiting to see what the judge is going to decide on this issue, if she's effectively going to hit pause on the Justice Department's criminal investigation. It is noteworthy, she said, that even if she does decide to go forward with this, she's still going to let the intelligence community's risk assessment of these documents go forward, Caitlin. Yeah, that Bill Barr interview was really something. <laughs> yeah. It sounded a lot like he agreed with this current Justice Department mm -hmm. more than Trump, Sarah Murray, thank you. Thanks. So let's get more perspective on all of this from former Assistant U.S. Attorney Ellie Honig and Joshua School, former FBI Executive Assistant Director for Intelligence. Josh, I want to start with you because this unsealed inventory that we got today that you know normally was not made public, it shows us that classified documents were mixed in with all kinds of other stuff, clothes, gifts, magazine clippings. What did you make of that? Well, I just uh, thank you for having me on. I think I think it was just a, uh, a series of things that were thrown together in boxes and really, really cavalier attitude towards classified information, frankly, is what I took away from it. And and I think you're seeing that throughout this. There was documents found in the former president's office in a, in a storage room that wasn't really secure. And then, of course, the delay tactics that went on in getting these back to the government. Yeah. And of course, we know that's exactly what they're investigating, not just that these were taken, but what happened once they were there and how they were handled. And Ellie, you saw the Justice Department arguing in their legal filing this week that highly classified material, in their words, was, quote, likely concealed and removed from that storage room as what they say is potentially part of an effort to obstruct the FBI's investigation. Now we found out the FBI found 27 classified documents in Trump's office, and seven of those had top-secret markings. How would a prosecutor even begin to go about investigating who has handled these documents and what's happened with them? Yeah, Caitlin, it's such an important question because now you have to figure out who handled them, who may have mishandled them. I think prosecutors are looking at a few things here. First of all, let's remember DOJ subpoenaed the surveillance videos from Mar-a-Lago. So I guarantee you they are scrutinizing those videos to see who went into and out of what room, what storage area. Can you see anyone handling documents? They're also talking to witnesses. Let's remember we know from DOJ's filings that they have multiple civilian witnesses. That doesn't necessarily mean a cooperating witness, someone who's done something wrong, could be a bystander, could be a staffer, could be an innocent person who's providing information. And finally, I've seen some people wondering about, well, could they check for fingerprints or DNA? They could try. There's really no harm in that. But it's important to people to understand this is not CSI on TV. It's not the case that any time a human being touches a document, it leaves behind fingerprints or DNA. Sometimes it does, but not always. But if it was me, I would send it off to the forensic lab and see what came back to try to figure out who exactly may have handled these documents. Yeah, we know it's a big question for investigators. And Josh, when it comes to these documents, one thing that stood out to me from this inventory list today were the empty folders, because it said there were 48 of them marked as classified. So they were empty, but they were marked as had containing classified information. 42 of them marked return to staff secretary military aid. And, you know, if you're not familiar with the White House, it's obviously a staff secretary is the person who controls the entire paper flow going into the West Wing. A military aide is often with the president carrying these important documents. And I wonder what you make of this, because we've heard from some people expressing alarm, the fact that they're empty, what was in them and what happened to those documents. Some other people have said, well, these folders get reused a lot. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. So what do you make of it? 
I think both of those are accurate, right? I think when you look at the totality of what uh, the FBI is investigating, and you and obstruction is a is one of those topics and one of those char, uh, potential crimes, there could have been documents in there that were destroyed, but it's also very likely that there were those folders were mixed in with a bunch of the other documents that were seized and that that they do exist in classified settings so that you can protect uh, classified documents when they're being moved from office to office within a skip or within uh, the government. Okay, well, that's good to know. Obviously, that's it's raised so many questions about the fact that so many of them were, were marked empty. Ellie, Trump's own attorney general, Bill Barr, we just heard from him what Sarah was saying when he, he called their, their request for a special master a red herring. He was also very critical of the fact that Trump took classified information with him to Mar-a-Lago. I think the driver on this from the beginning was, the, was you know, loads of classified information sitting in Mar-a-Lago. People say this was unprecedented. Well, it's also unprecedented for a president to take all this classified information and put him in a country club. OK. And how, how long is the government going to uh, try to get that back? The facts are starting to show that they were being jerked around. And, and so how long, you know, how long do they wait? Ellie, what'd you make of that? Well, Caitlin, it's remarkable when we remember who Bill Barr is. He spent two years as Donald Trump's AG, really doing everything in his power to cover up for Donald Trump, distorting the law, distorting the facts, cheerleading for Donald Trump. And so it hits extra hard now when we hear Bill Barr taking this turn. And the reason I think Bill Barr is able to give this kind of advice and view is because he has the perspective of having been the attorney general twice, in fact, once in the early 90s. And so, A, he had the highest level security clearance. He understands the importance of these documents that were scattered about best case scenario. The other thing is he understands, again, from his own prior experience, that DOJ did everything to try to get these documents the nice way, the easy way. They met they negotiated, they tried to subpoena. And I think Barr understands and makes a good point there that DOJ almost had no choice but to execute the search warrant as a last resort. Yeah, notable comments from Bill Barr. Ellie, Joshua, thank you both for breaking that down for us. Thanks. Thank you. We have new signs that inflation might be slowing down, but a big question still to remain is, is it enough to actually change the mind of the Federal Reserve Chair? It's also been five days and many people in Jackson, Mississippi still don't have water. Will the federal government deliver a fix? In our money lead, a new snapshot of the U.S. economy as we head into the Labor Day weekend. The August jobs report showing that the economy added 315,000 jobs last month and the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7 percent. Sources say this report is what the White House had been waiting for, signs that a red-hot economy with record inflation has at least started to cool down a little. The main question now is, will this report be enough to convince the Federal Reserve that another massive rate hike isn't necessary when it meets later this month? Let's get straight to CNN's business correspondent, Rahel Solomon. Rahel, walk us through the big takeaways that you saw in today's report. Well, Caitlin, as you pointed out, this was a gradual cooling that some such as the White House and certainly the Federal Reserve would argue we need it. So 315,000 jobs added last month. That is still strong. That is still robust job growth, meaning that if you are at home and you need a job, chances are there is one out there for you. There are 1.9 open jobs for every one person looking. 
Uh, also, where we saw some of the strongest growth, professional services, that sector adding 68,000 jobs last month. Healthcare, so think uh, doctor's offices, nursing care facilities, adding 48,000 and retail 44,000. We also saw, and perhaps one of the strongest elements of this jobs report, is we saw the labor force participation rate, uh, the percentage of working Americans or working age Americans actually actively participating in the labor force. We saw that finally increase, meaning people are coming, Caitlin, off the sidelines and starting to look for work. And that's actually why you saw the unemployment rate rise from 3.5 to 3.7 percent, which is still low, but rising because more people are now coming off the sidelines and looking for work. So one thing you're hearing a lot, Caitlin, today from economists is this was a Goldilocks report in terms of the labor report, uh, the labor market. Not too hot, not too cold, just sort of right in the middle there. Which is a, a tough thing to achieve. But I do wonder, you know, how's the Federal Reserve reading this report? Well, I think two things for sure that the Federal Reserve will be pleased to see that labor force participation rate. Uh, certainly, Chairman Powell has indicated that he wanted to see uh, a greater supply of workers. So that certainly will be viewed positively. Also, wages started to moderate. So that will be seen positively. And so you're starting to hear from some of the banks, Caitlin, that, well, maybe a soft landing could be possible. Uh, JPM, JP Morgan putting out in a note today saying, so you're saying there's a chance. So uh, we're starting to feel like, all right, well, we're seeing some cooling and in a gradual way, this is going to be good news for the Fed, but certainly not enough to declare victory on the inflation front at all. Yeah, we'll see what what they saw on this when they meet later this month. Today, we did hear from President Biden. He said that he believes that some signs, there are signs that inflation might be beginning to ease. He's being very cautious lately. He was very cautious today. He kept saying maybe because of, of course, his predictions that inflation had peaked in December was not correct. Neither the, the idea that it was temporary, which the White House was saying all last year. So this idea that inflation may be starting to ease Is that backed up by the data that you see in this report today? Yeah, I think humility here in terms of forecasting uh, whether inflation has peaked is certainly important. But uh, certainly, right, we've seen energy prices continue to fall, and that really helps on the inflation front. However, Caitlin, we've also seen in other areas of the economy, especially shelter prices, we have not seen any cooling there. So in some ways, we're seeing some peaks in terms of energy, and that's going to help on the inflation front. In other areas of the economy, such as shelter costs, rent costs, for example, we haven't seen cooling just yet. Yeah, well, we'll... People are actively anticipating cooling in those areas, so we'll see when they get it. Rahel, thank you so much. And today, President Biden also responding to some of the backlash from his primetime address last night. That's next. In our politics lead, dire warnings from President Biden on the direction of American democracy. Listen to some of his speech last night outside of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. The Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump. MAGA Republicans have made their choice. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. All right, let's talk about the takeaways from President Biden's speech last last night. Yasmin Abutalib, let's start with you. You know, you saw the president in 2020 running that campaign on this idea of national unity. And he, he returned to that in a sense last night of this battle for the soul of the nation, which you talked about so often on the campaign trail, as you well know. But last night, he seemed to be basically making the argument that unity has its limits. 
I think that's exactly right. You know, there, President Biden has been criticized for a lot of um, his his first 20 months or so in office for saying he wants to work with Republicans. He wants to reach across the aisle. A lot of Democrats have said, you know, it's naive. This is a different Republican Party than when he was in the Senate. They have managed to do things on a bipartisan basis. And I think what you saw was the president trying to draw a contrast between what he called MAGA Republicans, meaning people who are denying the results of the 2020 election, who have said indicated a willingness to perhaps overturn or change election laws in the future, um, and, and what he called mainstream Republicans, Republicans who have sort of more traditional conservative beliefs, but don't necessarily embrace the political ideology of President Trump. But I think, you know, from talking to White House sources from other Democrats, I think they feel that this is a moment where, you know, unity with, with Republicans who still don't accept the results of the 2020 election um, have indicated that they may not accept the results of 2024, may change election laws to, to be more in favor of what uh, former President Trump has advocated for, those are not people they can work with. And I think the president's been much more stark and direct in, in stating that he just can't work with people like that. Yeah, he was basically making the argument about the sake of democracy when it comes to, to math. And Chris Eliza, he was also asked today, as he was trying to draw that distinction last night, saying that all Republicans are not MAGA Republicans, mm-hmm as he's described it. Today, he was asked by a reporter if he considered all Trump supporters to be a threat to democracy. This is how he answered. I don't consider any Trump supporter to be a threat to the country. I do think anyone who calls for the use of violence, fails to contend violence when it's used, refuses to acknowledge when an election has been won, insists upon changing the way in which the rules you count votes. That is a threat to democracy. Chris, what'd you make of that? It seems to me a little bit of a distinction without a difference there. I I think what he doesn't want to say, because he's Joe Biden at heart, right? This is a guy who did run as sort of the unifier, the guy who's going to bring the country back together. I think he doesn't want to say that any American is a threat to the country. At the same time, lots and lots of people who identify as Trump supporters have said and have run on the idea that the 2020 election was not fairly conducted. So he's saying they're a threat to democracy if they believe that, but they're not a threat to the country. Mm, that's a hard distinction to draw. What I would say is the speech last night, Caitlin, was 68 days before the election, right? That's a political speech. I I, I think it was done on purpose by Joe Biden and his aides to set a standard by which he was going to campaign on. I think the question he got today, a little bit more off the cuff, probably a little bit closer to the sort of who Joe Biden inherently is, which is he doesn't want to vilify, but the nature of campaigns is to draw those distinctions. And my guess is you're going to hear more of the rhetoric we heard last night from both Biden as well as Democratic candidates between now and November 8th. Yeah. You know, I mean, do you think this is part of this this larger effort by President Biden to basically frame a vote in November for Republicans, for, for certainly the ones who style themselves after former President Trump as a vote for extremism? Absolutely. I think that President Biden's been clear that um, he's raising the stakes of this election, that it's not about disagreements over tax or climate or health policy. That it, And he said this in the, in the speech last night, that it's about the future of the country, about whether Americans want to continue forward with a with democratic system of governing or whether you know the country is going to move backwards. So I think he's been very clear 
and what he views this as the stakes of, of November's midterm elections. And I do think it's important to note that, he, and he noted this in the speech, that there are a number of Republican candidates who have won primaries this year who have said that they would be willing to change election laws and still don't accept the results of the 2020 election, including uh, the Republican candidate for Pennsylvania governor, Doug Mastriano, which is where, of course, Biden was delivering the speech last night. Yeah, you couldn't ignore where he was, Chris. Of course, he's in Pennsylvania. He has been there several times already. He's going back there on Monday. But also tomorrow, President or President, former President Trump is going to Pennsylvania to campaign as well. He's got several candidates there that he's endorsed. So what do you make of the idea that Biden was arguing last night that this isn't really a referendum on his presidency come November? You know, they've struggled with low approval numbers, high inflation that we were just talking about. But he seemed to be framing it as this idea of normal versus not normal. Yeah, I mean, look, there's no question, Caitlin, that the uh, improvement in Democratic prospects, and I don't think Democrats are still favored to keep the House and Senate. I still would say Republicans are probably slightly favored in both. But the improvement in Democratic prospects has come with Joe Biden's uh, recession a little bit in terms of Uh, not being in the news for all these negative stories about gas prices and inflation, and who coming into the fore more and more and more, Donald Trump, the Mar-a-Lago search, what he said about it, what has come out about it. So the more that it's a choice between Joe Biden and what Joe Biden represents to the average swing voter and Donald Trump and what Donald Trump represents to the average swing voter, the better in Biden's mind for Democrats. And I think you would, if you gave a Republican strategist truth serum, they would be perfectly happy if Donald Trump didn't say, or, or I was going to say tweet, but I, I don't know, truth, truth social, something between now and the election. They would be perfectly happy if Donald Trump campaign for candidates, that's fine. But if he sort of stayed as low profile as Donald Trump could stay, because they want the focus still to be on Joe Biden. There is still questions about Joe Biden's handling of the economy. Yes, those questions have gotten a little bit better for Joe Biden of late, but there are still questions about that, his handling of foreign policy. There's plenty of questions and historical arguments that suggest this shouldn't be a good election for Democrats. The counter to that is that we have a former president who is more high profile in ways we have never seen before and continues to be so. And that's the thing that Republican strategists I took talk to, that's what worries them. We've never had a person like Donald Trump looming out in a midterm election like Donald Trump is looming. That's what Joe Biden's uh, sort of latching onto. Well, yes, I mean, I guess that's the natural next question. Then, you know, Trump is in Pennsylvania tomorrow. He's endorsed a lot of these candidates that, you know, he boosted them in the primary, but now it's struggling to translate that momentum into general election votes. And certainly judging by the poll numbers right now for people like uh, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, who, you know, had kind of wrapped himself in Trump during the primary. But now that he has secured the nomination and he's going ahead in this general election, you know, he's not as closely hugging Trump as he was previously. I think that's that's right. And I think Chris made a, a great point, which is that Republicans are are stuck in this position now where they have to talk about President Trump because of his growing legal problems and the investigation by the Department of Justice. They're trying to put some many Republicans are trying to put some distance between themselves and Trump because they're having trouble defending, you know, his his possession of of classified documents, which, of course, has looked increasingly serious over time. So they're getting distracted talking about the former president instead of talking about the current president and his record. And I think a lot of these candidates recognize that. And you've actually seen them backing off some of the more extremist positions they may have adopted when they were trying to win 
Trump's endorsement in the primaries. You've seen a number sort of soften or take away language about denying election results or rigged elections on their campaign websites. Um, obviously, the, the Supreme Court decision overturning abortion has been a, a huge liability. So I think you've seen a lot of them trying to make themselves a bit more palatable, especially for these Senate statewide races. Yeah, we'll see if it works. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell certainly is a little cautious on that. Yasmin and Chris, thank you both so much for joining us on this Friday. Thanks, Caitlin. All right, CNN footage being used to help catch a heartless killer in the middle of the war in Ukraine. Stick around for details on that. In our world lead, inspectors for the United Nations nuclear watchdog are looking to establish a permanent presence at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, which is a major source of power for Ukraine. Ukrainian officials say that a second reactor at the plant is now up and running after being disconnected yesterday because of shelling in the area. CNN's Sam Kiley is in Zaporizhia. Sam, is this nuclear watchdog really hopeful about making a permanent position there, given there's been so much fighting surrounding the actual plant itself? Amazingly, they are, Caitlin. Uh, they took the, uh, the, currently, they've got six inspectors there. That will go down to two uh, they hope to have in there permanently. They seem to think that they've got the agreement of both the Russians and the Ukrainians for that. And that would be, in the words of Mr. Grossi, a difference between night and day. Now, of course, Rafael Grossi, who led that team into the nuclear power station, drew attention very critically to the, the single biggest threat that it faces. Take a listen. It is clear that those who have these aims, these military aims, know very well that uh, the, the way to cripple or to, or to do more damage is not to look into the reactors, which are enormously sturdy and robust, but to you know, hit where it hurts so the plant becomes um, you know, very, very problematic. Now, uh, hitting where it hurts means cutting the main power supply to the cooling system. That's happened twice, at least in the last week, Caitlin. And it's that, really, that Mr Grossi says that military planners, he's not saying who, clearly know what they're doing, Caitlin. Yeah, and Sam, all of this is going on as Russia is threatening to cut off oil supply to countries that impose restrictions as the finance ministers from the G7 nations have agreed to put a price cap on Russian oil. So what more do we know about that? Well, it's a price cap. They don't know where the price cap will fall. Uh, obviously, the price of oil has gone up and down uh, following the last six months of the war in Ukraine. And most of these economies are already not really seriously importing oil. Indeed, uh, the United States and Europe effectively have banned the import of oil, not gas. 40% of uh, Europe's gas comes from uh, Russia, and that's not yet uh, being banned or cut off because they can't afford to do it. Elsewhere in the world, there's been a significant ship shift. Two-thirds of the oil that Russia used to sell westward is now being sold to China and India. It's not clear where they're going to be able to put those caps in, but clearly a very important symbolic moment, at least, Caitlin. Yeah. Sam Kiley, thanks for those important updates out of Ukraine. Also in our world lead, Ukrainian prosecutors want to hold those who committed war crimes in the town of Bucha accountable. This is where those mass graves were uncovered in April once Russia had withdrawn from the area, its forces at least. These were images that shocked the world. And now prosecutors in Bucha say that they used video from CNN's exclusive report in May showing two men who had been shot in the back by Russian shoulders, so Russian soldiers to help identify and charge one of them that they say is responsible.
We want to warn you that the video you're about to see is violent and disturbing, as CNN's Sarah Snyder reports. Ukrainian prosecutors say this is the moment an undeniable war crime was carried out by Russian soldiers. This video clip obtained by CNN has yet to be seen by the public. It shows Russian soldiers firing at something alongside a business they have just overtaken on the outskirts of Kyiv. Turns out their target is two unsuspecting and unarmed Ukrainian civilians who they shoot in the back. We first reported on this portion of the video in May, showing the business owner dying where he falls and the guard initially surviving but bleeding to death after making it back to his guard shack. Both men had just spent the last few minutes speaking calmly with the Russian soldiers who appeared to let them go. But we now see two of the soldiers return and fire on them. My father's name is Leonid Alexeyevich Platz. The guard's daughter, Yulia, told us then she wanted the world to know her father's name and what the Russians did to him. Yulia, have you seen the video? I can't watch it now. I will save it to the cloud and leave it for my grandchildren and children. They should know about this crime and always remember who our neighbors are. And now, the Bucha prosecutor's office says with the help of CNN's story, it has finally identified one of his executioners. The suspect's name, Nikolay Sergeyevich Sokovakov. Ukraine has informed Russia that their pretrial investigation has zeroed in on Sokovakov as the perpetrator of the cold-blooded killing. While prosecutors will not reveal exactly how they identify this particular soldier, we have seen one part of the process being used by Ukrainian officials, facial recognition technology. It's really fast. The Ministry of Digital Transformation gets an image, loads it into the program they created, and it scrubs social media looking for a match. Once they have a match of a soldier, dead or alive, they try to corroborate it with friends and family on the soldier's social media sites. We have identified about 300 cases, he says. The identification of the latest suspect for war crimes was months in the making. But it is at least one step towards justice for the families who have had something taken from them they can never get back, the life of someone they loved. And Bucha prosecutors say that Ukraine has indicted the Russian soldier Sokovakov, but he's been indicted in absentia. They do not know where he is. They have not been able to capture him. That's at least, you know, one step toward justice for those families. Sarah, thank you for that important report. Sure, Caitlin. Meanwhile, the government cannot keep up with climate change as rising water is washing away the maps that they used to use to determine which homes are in flood zones. In our national lead, the head of FEMA is in Jackson, Mississippi today, where a water emergency is dragging on. The city went into crisis mode on Monday when its main water plant failed after flooding. Water pressure is improving, we are told, but only after days of almost nothing, leading to brown residue in some faucets, as you can see in this picture. A reminder that boil water advisories have been basically on and off in Jackson for over a year, frustrating many of the residents there. And for many of them right now, getting bottled water means sitting in these winding lines in 90-degree heat at distribution sites. That story brings us to our Earth Matters series today. 
Do you really know if your home is in a flood zone? The climate crisis is causing more intense rain events to flare up, making these designated flood zones really largely out of date. In fact, as CNN's Renee Marsh found, federal flood maps may be off as much as 70 percent. Fast flowing, fast rising flash floods, a common scene this summer with 1,000 year rain events striking in multiple states. CNN collected data from local and federal flood agencies and found significant portions of communities that saw floods of biblical proportions this summer were outside of what FEMA considers high risk flood zones. People should not rely exclusively on FEMA flood maps in this age of climate change because the flood maps only look backwards. They look at historical flooding. Property owners, local and state governments use FEMA maps to determine risk and make critical decisions about where it's safe to build. FEMA says its maps were never intended to predict risk from climate change. Flood insurance rate maps have a, have a purpose, and that purpose is to identify the high-risk area for regulating development. What they are not is a predictor of where it might flood in a community. And I think the message that you're saying is it, it can flood even if you're not in a FEMA flood zone. Absolutely. Nationally, FEMA classifies roughly 8.7 million properties as having substantial risk of flooding. But the nonprofit First Street Foundation, a research firm that considers climate change and mapping risk, identifies nearly 70 percent more properties with the same level of risk. That means about 6 million property owners are likely underestimating or unaware of their current flood risk. This summer, five ultra-rare 1,000-year rain events happened over the past three months, starting in Kentucky and St. Louis this July, southeastern Illinois and Death Valley in early August, and most recently, Dallas. Preliminary data CNN gathered from city and county agencies in and around St. Louis show roughly 78 percent of the flooded properties were outside of FEMA's flood zone. That translates to more than 8,000 property owners who likely had no idea they were at risk for this kind of catastrophe. There are tens of millions of homeowners who don't realize that their homes may be vulnerable to flooding, and very few people who aren't in a mapped FEMA flood zone uh, bother to buy FEMA flood insurance, but that can be a mistake. The agency says it is actively working to create maps that reflect a more realistic flood risk in the age of climate change, but it doesn't have a timeline for when that will be complete. So how can you figure out your true flood risk? The first step is you can check out riskfactor.com. It allows you to enter your home address and determine your flood risk in the age of climate change. Also, if you do have considerable risk, you want to consider getting a national FEMA flood policy, even if you're not in a FEMA flood zone. And lastly, that sensitive equipment, appliances, um, if you're building a home, the furnace, they say it's best to place all of that on the upper level. Caitlin? Yeah, that is critical information. Romina Marsh, thank you. Sure. Coming up, it has been quite the swan song. Will Serena go three for three tonight? Turning to our sports lead, Serena Williams, one of the greatest athletes of all time, is returning to the tennis court tonight at the U.S. Open. Let's bring in CNN sports analyst and sports columnist for the USA Today, Christine Brennan. Christine, do we think Serena can pull off another win tonight, go three for three? (laughs) We do, Caitlin. I think based on what she did Wednesday against the number two seed, uh, now she's playing Isla Tomjanovic. That's tonight, and she is unranked. 
uh, 46th in the uh, in the world and has never made it past the third round of a U.S. Open. So Serena is definitely the favorite. And if she can keep playing as she has been freely, you know, just power swinging away as if no one's chasing her, the, the joy of kind of not being the hunted player anymore. If Serena can continue to do what she did on, on Wednesday night, I think she will win and move on into the weekend. And meanwhile, of course, my favorite time of year is back, college football season. We just found out the college football playoff is going to expand to include 12 teams no later than 2020, 2026, but as soon as 2024. Obviously, this was a unanimous vote, we are told, but there is a lot of complicated logistics in here and a lot of people who feel that maybe it shouldn't have gone this big, maybe it should have been a little bit a few, fewer teams. What do you make of it? Exactly. You know, going from four to eight, you it might have, you know, that that would have been a first step and then to 12. But now 12, um, it's all about the money, Caitlin. You know this well from your love of college football, my love of college football. It's all about the money. When you have the Big Ten signing a $1 billion a year contract with Fox uh, to televise just the Big Ten, uh, and I'm a Big Ten person, you can see the money that is out there. And all these commissioners and the league of the various leagues and, of course, the presidents of universities have said, they're leaving too much money on the table. And so they're going for it. And it's it, that's a big part of this. And frankly, that's why we're going to be seeing as soon as 2024, actually, 12 teams in the playoff. I mean, this term student athlete, probably we need to get rid of most of that. The student is getting less and less important in the term student athlete. But it is all about the money and what fans want to see. And people want to see more teams in the playoff. Well, and that's a big question, too, with football season returning. You know, how different is it going to look with what we've seen with the name, image, likeness aspect of this and these student athletes being able to profit off of their work? It's going to be fascinating to see. You see, for example, some players who get a lot of money are sharing it with their teammates. They understand that the quarterback needs the offensive lineman. You're seeing some of that. Will there be situations where sponsors say, hey, play this guy. I, I paid him all this money. Uh, coaches, of course, are trying to feel their way in terms of what their, of course, it's their job to be in control of a team, but if there's money involved. So it's a new uh, era in college football, but it was coming, no doubt about it. You know that as, as well as anyone. And so here we are. I still think it's America's national pastime. We love our football, college and pro, and the passion in college football is like nothing else in America. So frankly, I think that people will be into it just as they always are. But you're right, there are going to be some very, very different things, mostly with the bottom line, looking at those decimal points and the money that the players are making now, as well as the coaches. Yeah. Normally, Christine, I would tell you thank you for coming on with us, but today I will just leave you with a roll tide. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Go Wildcats. <laughs> And thank all of you for watching today. Be sure to watch State of the Union this Sunday. Our Dana Bash will interview Democratic Senator Patty Murray of Washington and her Republican opponent, Tiffany Smiley, plus FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell on the crisis in Jackson. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. I'm Caitlin Collins in for Jake Tapper. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a safe holiday weekend. And our coverage continues right now in the Situation Room. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.